It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. On the show to talk about an article they co-authored in The Conversation. The article is entitled, Canadian Universities, 10 Years of Anti-Racist Reports But Little Action. With me on the show, we have Natalie Delia Deckard. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology at the University of Windsor. Dr. Deckard holds a PhD in sociology from Emory University in Atlanta, and she's a member of both the Canadian and American Sociological Associations and sits on the board of the John Howard Society. Also with us is Jane Koo, and she is an associate professor in sociology and women's and gender studies. Studies at the University of Windsor. She has a PhD degree from the University of Toronto at the Ontario Institute of Studies in Education, and she has conducted research on racism, immigration, experiences of belonging and integration, and feminist activism. She is currently organizing an interdisciplinary conference on race scholarship and mentoring racialized students to develop anti-racist voice. Certainly by looking at the work that you are both involved in and that you have been studying, it certainly goes hand in hand with the topic of discussion today. Canadian universities, 10 years of anti-racist reports, but little action. When you guys started to look at this and you came up with the title, obviously, Little Action, it sounds like that's a disappointment, one. And two, were you surprised by what you found? This is Natalie, and I can I, I can go first. Sure. Um, I was shocked, shocked and appalled, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I say that. Um, I am uh, proud and excited to sit on the president's anti-Black Racism Task Force at the University of Windsor. Many universities in Canada have begun similar work in this period, right? When we look at the ways in which the Black Lives Matter movement has really influenced student advocacy, uh, universities have have come together, right, to say what can we do to make it so that our institutions are a place of learning for all students, irrespective of social identity, irrespective of racialization. How can we be better? And I, I said to myself, wonderful, right? These are really important moves. And I, I then began work to pull um, reports that had been authored by similar task forces, working groups, and the like over the last decade and indeed two decades at universities in Canada. And I found that these groups have spent hours, right? So much expertise, so much time, so much care in making the same recommendations over and over again year after year. And it's starting to feel as though it were, it were, it were a bit performative. Oh, mm. um, the striking of the task force, the doing of the, the completion of the investigation. But to what end? Mm. If we are only going to make the same recommendations again, as we started seeing in these reports in the early 1990s, to see that none of the recommendations were actually prioritized or put into place, then what actually are we participating in? Mm. Yeah, so I was shocked. Mm. Jane, do you have anything to add? I would say that I'm not shocked, even though I am kind of shocked, but it's it's something that um, the students have been doing this work for years and years. Every time there has been a, uh, a 
crisis has always been because the students have been uh, really getting themselves organized and pressuring the universities and administration to make changes. Um, so these these things have always required student effort and student activism. So I'm, I think about back in late 1990s and early 2000s, um, back then too, as students, we all, we did a lot of work around anti-racism and this was when I was in, in Toronto. But so these, these kinds of activism have always, the pressures have always come from students mm-hmm. to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, administration is not going to change without that kind of pressure and that kind of critique that has, uh, that the, that students bring to the, the discussion. So, no, I'm not surprised in that sense. Another follow-up question to that. Is part of the surprise because we look at our universities as places for one discussion and places when we, we think we can sort of initiate change, that we can get the ball rolling very quickly in many ways, faster than, say, in the general public or at large corporations or, or those kind of things. We, we, we kind of tend to think of our universities in that way, don't we? I um, I actually think that universities are very slow in making changes. <laughs> um, it takes us much longer to, uh, and part of it is also we often do th- do uh, things very carefully. So that's a good thing about the uh, university site because we do we do deliberate, we do think about things carefully, and and as a result, things do move much slower. Um, and yet at the same time, it is also it is. It is the site for uh, for activism, and the students have uh, often are in a group where they can get uh, radicalized much mm-hmm. faster, and is much are much more able to t- support each other's points of views and debate each other's points of views. And so, it can be. And yes, so in that sense, we are universities should be and could be the the leader of change. Yeah, and and I think because of what you just said there, that I I at least have a sense that universities are reactive because of that, that yes, they are the place we can debate, they are the place we can bring together and and come together and and present different points of view and talk about these in an open and fair fashion and thinking that if there's something there to be done, that those institutions would then move forward on it and I guess what you found is that in this instance that hasn't been the case yeah I was with you David um my 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 trust and I'm using that word trust really intentionally right because it's it's deeper than what I thought or or even what I believed I trusted that um the universities as an extension of the public sphere Mm. had a mandate towards equity Mm. right and that the um, confronted that mandate in a genuine and authentic manner. When I saw um, across universities uh, throughout the nation, this moment of reckoning in which we were calling for um, working groups to, to determine how can we do better? How can we be better? I thought that was going to be reflective of widespread action right, in keeping with this equity mindset. It's, mm-hmm. We're deeply responsible for our community and to our nation. Um, one of the reasons that I, I characterized my reaction to, to seeing all of these reports is because I didn't understand that there was a disparity between 
um, the public discourse around the universities as a public space and what was actually happening at the bureaucratic level, right? which was not much. And so when you started to look into this and you found, uh, you made some examples of, about, I think, about 10 universities and, and the way students have uh, done these things. And going right back to last summer, right, where we had many protests happening um, all around, of course, Black Lives Matter and those kind of things that were happening. What do you think this then says if universities are not moving ahead on things that are being brought forward from the student body? making reactions, bringing things forward, saying these are the recommendations that we want to implement or have implemented? Institutions often respond to these crisis moments and do, um, like, do reports and do a lot of, uh, take a lot of actions that seem to address the issues. Um, But very soon after, and once the discourse subsides, then and the crisis dies down, then it goes back to normal. So that's the that's the difficulty which uh, I find uh, that you, you know that this is every time there is a crisis, the, the students have generated enough energy, and there's a lot of uh, 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 debate and uh, recommendations and all of these things that go on. But uh, unless we sustain that kind of level of energy, the the institution tends to to uh, just uh, wait till everything subsides and then not really carry forward. So a lot of these um, uh, recommendations that are made, often they address it in a very superficial manner and then nothing actually gets done, accomplished in the long run. So, so we have to keep coming up with reports and this is, this is why we're getting very tired of, you know, these things have been said 20 years ago and, nothing actually changes um, after the report. So what? Yeah. How is that any different than, <laughs> um, you know, many government policies or many other kind of ideas that are debated and then put on the back shelf and, and not done anything, not move forward. So then how, how do we, how do we go about making sure that they are implemented? You say, you've, you know, the students have gone forward, they've made these recommendations, they've put it in the hands of the universities and, and yet still is nothing happening. Is there, is there some step missing or is there a body missing or what, 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 what where is the, where does that responsibility need to lie then in order to get things implemented? Um, David, I want to underline the importance of the analogy that you just made. Okay. The idea that universities exist in a separate world and they're not accountable to the same insidious inaction mm. Mm. that happens in other public services and public goods mm. is simply not true. Having conversations around um, the, in I was going to say incapacity, but unwillingness mm of universities to enact actual common sense policies that their own working groups have said were key um, to conversations I'm having with police departments Mm. in which literally power holders within police departments are are saying, well, you know, we just can't imagine how the police look more equitable in racialized communities throughout Canada. And when your response is, we have 20 years reports demonstrating what needs to happen right. and you've done none of the things right. and that's why you're in this position now right right the the willful ignorance around that those aren't different conversations right and mm. i think that 
when we ask how we can move universities forward so that they reflect the priorities of their communities and constituents for real equity an actual opportunity across class and race lines. Uh, we should be asking the same thing of all of our public agencies. Mm-hmm. And they, they have similar stakes. Um, and I think that the, um, the system of prioritization is what's, um, what's key here. Uh, I, uh, universities, at the end of the day, don't believe that their communities prioritize racial equity. And mm. given the lack of accountability, I, I, I find it difficult to disagree. What are we doing as a community to hold our institutions accountable and make them prioritize these questions so that we retain some type of collective morality? I think these are questions that we need to be asking ourselves. Mm. Yeah. To, to, and also to add to, uh, uh, to, to, to point out what um, Natalie raised earlier around uh, discourse, right? So we haven't really changed our point of view. Our perspectives are still largely uh, from the point of view of a white supremacist uh, perspective. So that leaves very little room to actually make changes because we are still talking about accommodating um, people rather than a genuine equity that allows for the fact that there should be in the university, there should be um, uh, a large number of voices uh, who are black, uh, who are from other minorities, uh, and and that those kinds of discursive changes at the discourse level and at the representation level, where where there are people who are in the universities who can make decisions, are made up of um, a variety of perspective and people from all walks of life that would allow us for. Uh, longer uh, change that uh, that can be more permanent rather than just dealing with one step or two steps that um, only deal with the the um, the passion of the moment and then um, stops after you know after everybody's tired and no longer can keep applying the pressure to make changes hmm you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd also like to welcome those people listening on other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth. And you might also be listening on our SoundCloud and or one of your favorite podcast platforms, and we welcome all of our listeners. It's a pleasure to have on the show with me today, Natalie Dalia Deckard. She is an an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology at the University of Windsor, along with Jane Koo, who is an associate professor in Sociology and Women's and Gender Studies, also at the University of Windsor. And we are talking to them about an article they co-authored in The Conversation entitled Canadian Universities, 10 Years of Anti-Racist Reports, But Little Action. I'd like to go back to to something that uh, Natalie said. I guess you talked about priorities and that... You know, we we need to put more pressure, but you you've got this you've got these 
these years of documents that universities have been sitting on and and as your article points out, it's a lot of the same information that has been has come up right across the board at all these universities uh, that have looked into this or have been uh, gathering information on on what to do uh, with anti-racism. So why do you think that we still need to apply pressure or, or what is what is it that is this lack of will that is is driving the universities to not take action and and I'll follow up to that I guess uh, maybe Jane can, you can take this one is is are we seeing a change now especially since last summer and what has happened with Black Lives Matter in the last year um, well we, we are see, we're seeing a change in the sense that we did get uh, all these uh, promises to do certain things in our university mm-hmm. and elsewhere. So there is a lot and there has been hiring happening um, uh, around uh, addressing some of the anti-black racism that has mm-hmm. been happening. But I again, I'm I'm skeptical that this will be long lasting change because uh, uh, they're just still very few in number and we don't have a, a, a wide ranging uh, community and discursive change that will actually within the university that can address uh, or can create uh, transformative changes. Okay, Natalie, anything to add to that? Um, I, I I would like to to talk about that issue of prioritization. Mm. Jane's point, and she's absolutely right. Right there, there becomes this need for sustained pressure only because there's no actual buy-in. Right? So it needs to be inevitable that change comes despite the best intentions of those that hold power. It's not a great position to be in. Mm-hmm. What you actually want is everyone to be on the same page. I've only seen this happen once in real life. There was a conversation in a, in a different context that I was then a part of around admissions for early childhood education. So now, as everyone knows, men are severely disproportionately underrepresented in early childhood education contexts. Right? Mm. In, among preschool teachers, for example, um, there's, there's, there's no men. Right? Mm. So uh, the admissions committee got together and said, all right, right we are no longer looking at solely GPA. We know that if we have any representation of young men coming through as candidates, that they can be on the pipeline, which is what all the schools want and all the parents want. And frankly, it's much better for the society as a whole. Women make less in their careers because they do the majority of child care. Mm. This is a compelling social mandate. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, in the next admission cycle, your average men candidate was scoring 15 points below when they were admitted than female candidates and everyone considered this to be a win. It doesn't matter what you got in 11th grade English. What matters is that the institution reflects the society and community it is supposed to serve. I I would consider that. And it's, this happened 10 years ago, right? And it was, it was very much considered, right? And it's still considered a giant win for equity. Mm. I wonder about the priority sets into that make it so there is a continued underrepresentation, racialized uh, candidates broadly and black candidates specifically, such that um, there's always this attempt to keep pressure applied so that we have to be in this ongoing war when it doesn't have to be like that. Mm. Where is the demand that we actually be inclusive, really, through our priorities? 
I, can I add one more point about accountability? And I think this the way uh, institutions work, like universities is a huge institution, but the, the, it has to, the will has to come from the top. And in, in any institution and bureaucracy, it's very easy to split the accountability and nobody actually uh, is in, feels individually responsible for making the change because it's always there. Somebody else can take care of that part of it. And, and so this, this larger will to make sure that things actually move along, uh, it's very hard to implement um, because it's very easy to pass the buck. Um, so it has to, in some sense, it has to come from the top. Uh, there has to be a push to coming from the president's level to uh, ensure that, that all levels of the bureaucracy and every, everyone feels accountable for uh, this uh, this for for making uh, making changes you know the article points out of course that a lot of the the burden falls on the students they're the ones that are bringing these forward they're the ones that are that are uh, either protesting or or doing the marches and and raising these things on campus and talking about it and 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 wanting changes going to the administration to say this is what what we want making lists and and bringing this stuff forward and then there's the administration that you say must act. And of course that makes sense. Where does the, <laughs> this is sort of a, a funny question to ask in some ways, but um, where does the role of, the, of professors fall into this? If you don't mind me asking. <laughs> um, well, th- this is where I was trying to get at is that, yeah, it comes from the unit from the top, right. But mm. all of us in our, in our everyday action, mm. um, we have to be treating our students with respect and, and dignity. Um, and so it's very easy to fall back to the rules and the dis- diffused sense of responsibility and accountability um, and then pass the buck and say, this is not in my domain. Somebody mm. else can take care of it. Mm. Um um, so that we we have to be able to treat uh, all of our students uh, in in that sense, um, and and part of the problem, of course, is that we the institution uh, university has become very neoliberalized and um, aside students as being mere service users, and we're not really treating them as students. In a, and and also the the professors are also increasingly taking all kinds of. Um, of roles and bigger responsibility in terms of being accountable to the institution, but not really accountable to to the community that actually uh, work there, reside there, and 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 get their friendships and all kinds of networks there. Mm-hmm. So, so this has become this has also made it much harder um, in in terms of actually uh, dealing with or, or taking the time. To deal with with students and other people uh, on campus who have real genuine needs around, um, you know, or, or not be, uh, are are being treated as racially inferior, which of course we don't have the term for it when we're dealing with it in an everyday situation when um, a lot of the students are, like it's all coded, but we know a black student is going to be assumed to be uh, more difficult and, and, and because of the general discourse around criminalization. So all of that, um, the taking the time to actually 
stop yourself from thinking uh, from um, just automatically treating people in in those in that manner that is very difficult when when there is a general dis um, a discourage discouragement from taking uh, treating people uh, giving more time to to our students and and our colleagues mm. I was in a I was in a mix to to the point that um Bane and you David right, were were making um I the idea that faculty of color specifically bear a number of unique burdens mm-hmm. and I'm using the word burden mm-hmm. intentionally yep. right, because we like to talk about care work as though um it's free work that everyone loves to do but while other scholars are writing their new book right and being promoted right we're doing care work yep um disproportionately right, to mentor to protect right to sit to to help the salvage the um racial debacle Right, that the modern day Canadian university has become. Right? This is expected of me as a woman of color who is a member of the faculty at my institution and at all institutions in, in Canada. Mm. Right? Um, when you say, what are faculty doing? I want to I answer that really specifically. We are the ones that write all these reports that everyone ignores. <laughs> yes. They don't write themselves. We're right. the ones that do these radio interviews. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that the community can hear what's going on in the institutions where they are going to school, where they're attending their children to school, where they're attending their grandchildren to school, so that they can commit, so that they can demand accountability. And then when the mean listener forgets about hearing this in 10 minutes, mm. right? They will ask in 15, well, what is the faculty doing? Yes. This, this is what we're doing. Yes. We have a really good faculty, student, staff, and um, association at the University of Windsor called Researchers, Academics, Advocates of Color for Equity and Solidarity. The reason that that is so long is because the acronym is RACES. Um, RACES does all of the work of keeping people accountable and then ultimately being forgotten in a really invisibilized sort of way mm. that allows people to say, well, what are we doing? Um, I would have, I, I was in a mixed meeting the other day between community members of the university and um, members of various government agencies. And one young black man was talking about all of the work that he does in his community activism to help um, other younger people that look like him to survive and indeed thrive mm. in a particular in the, in their particular context, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but but note to myself tremendous amounts of talent, tremendous amounts of drive, and if that young black man were a young white man, right, he could do all sorts of things with his time that didn't include right. trying to help the people in his building not be brutalized by police. Absolutely. Right. What do faculty do? What do faculty of color do? This. Right. All day long. Yep. And, and I understood that. And, and that's why I said it was kind of, you know, a, a funny question to ask, because here we are doing something right now. And I, I get that. I, I guess where my mind was going with that question was responsibility. And and I know it's a difficult sort of and I didn't mean sort of publicly either. I meant within the institution, you know, is it is the responsibility of the professors to go and push the administration as well? But is and it's and is that 
much like the students who are taking chances by doing these things, is that also leaving the professors that are doing these things also vulnerable to potential backlashes? Yes. Mm. That is an excellent abbreviation of um, the, the, the ways in which we hold the tension mm-hmm. of the university saying that they, they want to create an anti-racist space while actively fighting against any measure that makes the institution an anti-racist space. Right? We hold all of that tension daily. If you're tenured, uh, you should be able to... You should be able to apply pressure. I mean, you have a lot more, um, you're in a much safer situation than students and early faculty uh, colleagues, right? So I, I, so there is a lot, I think there is uh, a lot more that faculty members can do as well in mm-hmm. terms of taking up the, you know, what the students are asking for. Mm-hmm. Well, Jane and Natalie, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and share thoughts around the article that you co-authored in the conversation entitled Canadian Universities, 10 Years of Anti-Racist Reports But Little Action. Thank you very much. David, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate the invitation. They are the voices of Natalie Dalia Deckard. She is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology at the University of Windsor, as well as Jane Koo, an associate professor in Sociology and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Windsor. That's this part of the show. Please don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And as you know, that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, we'd also like to welcome those listeners that are listening on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. It's a pleasure to have you join us as well as anyone listening on your favorite podcast platform. And you can also listen on our Element FM SoundCloud as well, and we appreciate if you do that, uh, maybe uh, like us there as well. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the show, we have a couple of people that are talking partly about a story that joined them through a, a sort of an unlikely situation that ended up them, them actually being together at this point in time. We have with us the founder of Strength in the Circle, John Meikle, or Johnny Meikle, Jonathan Meikle, and we also have Devon Henderson, and uh, their story started in, I guess, the late night or early morning on a bus ride one one day, so I'd like to welcome uh, Jonathan and Devon to the show. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Hello. Bonjour, Tensei. Bonjour. Jonathan, if you don't mind telling us something about Strength in the Circle first, because I did Strength in the Circle come out of this story, or was that something you had already started prior to this? Um, kind of started with my own personal healing journey just over three years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, I was involved in the criminal justice system uh, very cyclically. Um, that was part of my story, and and I. Uh, I, I guess that's that's what kind of joins us all together at Strength in the Circle is we all come from our own lived experience, our own interaction with the systems, uh, whether it's uh, 
some being child welfare system, some criminal justice system, some both. Um, as Indigenous people, uh, we, we all interact with uh, with the natural systems that that uh, that uh, perpetuate uh, trauma and and a lot of struggles in our communities. Um, so th- that that kind of pain and suffering is what brings us all together. But it's our shared belief of uh, our collective healing that really solidifies the unity of our movement. Mm. Now, Strength in the Circle is based in in Winnipeg, and a little bit more about that. It, it's a movement of of the both men and women that are creating change and providing powerful messages of resilience, as you point out, and hope to an otherwise overlooked population who have been negatively impacted by systems which were put in place to keep individuals in a state of distress. So I, I would like to, again, welcome you both to the show to share a little bit about this. Uh, do you prefer Jonathan or Johnny? It's Jonathan if I'm in trouble or job seeking. So it's just Johnny's fine. All right. So, uh, Johnny, you know, I know that you just talked about your own history there involved with the, the legal system. And that that was part and parcel of of the story you have shared around how you were in the military you went to afghanistan and and spent some time there and you ended up uh coming back and falling into i guess uh, the wrong lifestyle once again and that ended up with you uh, being in jail mm-hmm. yeah i did a short uh remand status stint in, in jail um yeah going in i was I was quite comfortable with where I was, which it says a lot because of um, the way I viewed myself at that time. I was, you know, self-loathing and and uh, I didn't have the yeah I didn't have the greatest self-perception and um, but somewhere in there I just I, I just had the right tools and and the right supports to reach out to me and I was able to to turn my life around. And so I guess I, I like to say that I'm a product of, you know, my community and those around me being there for me that, that helped me get out. So I asked myself, well, how can I step back in and, and help out others that are uh, going through similar uh, trials and some similar uh, mm. um, life experiences? Um, is it Norway House that's your home community? Yeah, Kinesil CP, uh, so in the language, it's Fish River, mm. and, uh, House Cree Nation. Yeah. Now, I understand from your story, you, you after you uh, had uh, got some help through uh, Indigenous Affairs, I, I believe, um, that helped you. Uh, you went, Veterans Affairs. Veterans Affairs, thank you. Yes, Veterans Affairs. And, and you went back to your home community, but you... you quickly realized that that wasn't the best place for you. You had to come back to the city. And when you came back to Winnipeg, it was there that you actually, a relative reached out to you and got you in contact with some, some people that, that then took you in and, uh, and really helped you. Uh, they were strangers, I understand, but they were involved with the, uh, the, the Bear Clan Patrol. Yeah, so I'll, it, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, that in our communities and the reserves, there's inadequate mental mm-hmm. health supports and, and inadequate uh, healing supports right. uh, for for those that are trying to turn their lives around. And so I realized that very quickly and decided to move back um, to Winnipeg. And, and it was actually a cousin of mine that connected me to 
uh, Janet Ross, who's uh, James Stables, uh, the the founder of Bear Clan, his mm-hmm. his mother. So I ended up staying with her, and and she took me in, and and it was that, that compassion that kind of really solidified my my healing journey. I guess it, it solidified where I was uh, at that time, and 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 that's how I naturally started to volunteer with Bear Clan Patrol. Um, it was a result of that compassion shown to me. Yeah, that compassion, it sounds to me like that was a bit of a turning point for you because it sounds like maybe you hadn't had a whole lot of compassion that was shown to you prior to this. No, I was, uh, I, <laughs> I had uh, grown pretty jaded mm. and bitter with life. Um, after my tour in Afghanistan, I, I walked around like the world owed me something and mm. um, that didn't, you know, that didn't help my character out a lot and uh, went down some pretty dark paths and um, I, I was very good at keeping people at a distance and uh, I kind of adopted that dog-eat-dog mentality. I'm out for myself and, uh, you know, those closest to me and, and everyone else can back up kind of thing. And, and so there was that disconnection that kind of fueled uh, the problem for me. Um, it's a very lonely place to be when you're disconnecting from everything. And even, even the culture I, I rejected um, because of, uh, I struggled with identity my whole life. And mm. so so I was very good at pushing the things that actually I needed in my life. The, the there was this huge void inside, and and so I was finding it in other means, you know, mm. drugs and alcohol, through uh, violence, and putting myself in places uh, that that were uh, questionable. Uh, I was a bit of a chaos junkie, if you will. Mm. So. Right. Now, so the name uh, uh, "Strength in the Circle." What? How is that? Uh, what is that in the language? Well, um, "Strength in the Circle" is is about connection. Um, okay. It's about unity. It's about coming together. It's about that circular thinking. Um, mm. In our philosophy, we we want to flatten the linear hierarchy. The the idea of others or the idea the idea of superiority over others over over the land over 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 mm. um the animals over each other and and flatten that out and, and realize that we're all equal and that we all have roles to contribute to something greater and and so we find we find it by coming together and, and actually having our circles and, and, and sharing with one another our strengths, our hopes, our gifts. Mm, right. So that goes back to that line I wrote down from a, a video I was watching that you said about lifting our people with us, not having that hierarchy. That, yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we we get stuck in that idea that we need to climb up that ladder. And sometimes when we do so, we're climbing over others Mm. and and we need to start thinking about lifting others with us coming up together as a collective 
um, moving away from those colonial constructs right. uh, that, that incentivize ego and prestige and, and all these things that, that increase the disparity amongst us. Mm. Right. Um, now, would you mind explaining briefly the story of how you and Devon happened to come in and meet each other, first of all, and then how you, you, you decided to pick up that story with him uh, after that encounter that you guys had upon his release from jail? Mm-hmm. Um. So the whole incident where we first met was after a year of my sobriety and turning my life around. And um, I was actually uh, celebrating that one year. It was a year and two days. And so with his friend Matthew and, and we jumped on a bus late at night afterwards, you know, had a nice big steak dinner. And, uh, and yeah, that's how... I came across Devon and, and, you know, things happened and, and, uh, I, I saw somebody that was in a similar, similar place that I was in, in life, you know, different stories, but, but a lot of similarities, um, being indigenous, um, knowing that we got a lot of brothers and sisters out there that are struggling, that have been through so much shit in their lives. I, I took that into account and, and, uh, and I thought about uh, our responsibility to help each other and, and stop condemning each other. And, and with the, all the media that was coming forward from that, trying to focus on the hero story. I saw that as problematic because with the hero story, it's again, just lifting the one person up and, and all eyes on the one, the, 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 the hero, if you will. Mm. But then with the hero story, there's always a bad guy and then nobody ever gives attention to who that person is and what their story is. Mm. And these are important things that we need to start looking at, especially in our communities where we're overrepresented in these issues. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. That's uh, that's really interesting because uh, I guess you could say in 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 another story, you you were you were that guy, weren't you? Yeah, you, you weren't the hero. You were the other guy in in previous stories. No, I've, yeah, I've heard a lot of people in my life, whether physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, um, I've heard a lot of people that I've loved, and you know, I've. I've been through the ringer. I've you know, been through those those negative experiences. I've, it wasn't the first time I had a knife in my face. Um, it was one of many. I gravitated towards those situations, and uh, you know, I think a huge part of me actually was looking for for uh, those types of situations. Mm. You know? mm. Right. It was, it, it was quite normalized and i think that's that's similar to a, a lot of uh brothers out there a lot of their stories you know we, that becomes the familiar that becomes normalized which shouldn't be the case right right 
Uh, Devon, you know, I know you guys have have shared this story a number of times, I'm sure. And I know that you've gone over this uh, probably a million times on, you know, yourself and thought about this. Um, Of course, the story that uh, we we know is that uh, you you guys got, uh, that uh, Johnny tried to prevent you from, I think you were going after somebody on the bus and he tried to intervene and there was a scuffle and, and through that, you ended up stabbing him in the leg, I believe, and um, but you didn't remember that initially. No, oh, no, I didn't. Um, I was heavily drinking that night, and yeah, you know, that happens, you know, when you black coat, you just don't know what the hell you're doing, and you just, you just don't know what happened, and that's what happened with me. And and you ended up, how long were you in jail for after for this? Yeah, 24 months. And while you were in there, had Johnny reached out to you prior to the fact that he wanted to meet you when you got out? Yeah, he actually uh, came to my uh, one of my uh, sentencing sentencing dates, mm. and um, he read a victim impact statement, and it was like completely different from how you, victim impact statements usually are. He said, like, how he wanted to, like, help me and, and you know, not see me just get thrown away in, in jail, you know what I mean? Because, mm. um, yeah, and, um, and yeah, he actually started to come visit me in jail there, too. Okay, so how did that make you feel? What 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 kind of thoughts went through your head when, when he approached and, and you heard this victim statement and then you heard that he wanted to come and visit and, and, and help you not be forgotten in jail? Um, at first, I was just, I, to be honest, man, I just, like, it's kind of shock, you know, but I was shocked, and at the same time, it's, like, being in jail, it's a different, like, environment, so I was kind of, like, I don't know, I was kind of, like, iffy about, like, if it was even like, real, if it was he being I, truthful, or I was if he able to let him help me to, mm. because of what the other guys would think that I was in jail with, you know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, over time, he came to visit you. He started to, uh, you know, meet up with you. How did that relationship develop in, in over that time? Um, you know, just it just felt. Well, I wanted to apologize to him, you know, like, like sober, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I did. And then, yeah, you know, like, we just, like, yo, he's a good guy, you know, like, we just, we just hit it off, you know what I mean? And now he's, now he's my brother. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. On the show with me today, I have uh, with me Johnny Meikle. He is the founder of Strength in the Circle. It's uh, based in Winnipeg. Also with us on the show is Devon Henderson, someone that, as you just heard him say, he's now the brother of of Johnny. And it's their story we're kind of talking about that led into uh, something that, very interesting, as as Johnny just pointed out, um, the story 
story that came out of this situation where uh, Johnny intervened with Devon on a bus uh, to try and uh, prevent someone potentially from being hurt. Uh, he ended up getting stabbed. Uh, Devon ended up going to jail. But uh, Johnny didn't leave it there. He, he stepped in and he wanted to help uh, Devon over that time when he was in jail. That's what we're kind of talking about now. He did eventually uh, actually go to meet Devon when he, when he was released from jail and uh, sort of start to embrace him and trying to, uh, I guess, show him uh, new and different ways of approaching the challenges that he faced in his life because of his own upbringing, because of his own background. And, you know, Devon, I know that uh, you spent a lot of time uh, in the uh, in the child um, uh, services in your very early life. I understand you were taken at three months. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was taken away from my parents because my father, he was an alcoholic and my mother was was a drug addict. And yeah, so I was to CFS when I was three months old and I just pretty much I lived I grew up in through that you know hmm. um, yeah now when you heard when you heard Johnny talking earlier about his life and about the things that he went through uh, you heard him say that you know at, at one point in his life he was just it's just all about me just look after myself hell with everybody else kind of thing how much could you relate to that? Well, I just, I can relate a lot because like, to be honest, yo, I used to be in a gang. I used to be a gang member. Mm. And um, when I was, when I was in a gang, like I really didn't, I kind of just, like I didn't really trust people, you know, like especially the guys in the same gang as me. It's just like, like, I just worried about myself, you know? Like, mm. Mm. That's kind of how I grew up, too. Like, I I used to, like, run away from homes a lot, and I just, like, I used to, like, be on my own, you know? Like, by myself, and... Right. Yeah. So, so how is your life now? You you have been out of jail. You've been uh, working and and uh, and spending time with with Johnny and the uh, these uh, circle uh, strength in the circle guys. Uh, how 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 has your life changed? How do you see things now? Well, for one thing, you know, like I don't want to go back to jail. Hmm. Like before, like before, like. I used to want to go back to jail, you know. I, I used to miss my homies inside because my homies out here were just like all too messed up on drugs and anything, you know. So, but like now, you know, like yo, I don't even want to go back to jail because like I just I don't ever see myself going back there. Like I, I have the right support, you know. Like that's what I've never had. Like actual, I never had actual brothers before. Hmm. And now I do, you know, and like, I just, I, the way I see this is like, yo, there's a lot of people in jail that who could use this, this support, you know, and mm-hmm. they, would, they would pretty, they would do the same as me too. They would be successful, y'all. Mm. Cause I, I actually did meet like very good people in jail and yeah. And, 
So over your over your uh, your time, I guess prior to, I'm not sure if it's 16 or 18 when when you're uh, free and clear of, of child services. 18, I guess you yeah, you spent 18. you spent over like some 75. You're in over 75 homes. Yeah, it was it was a lot more than that. But mm-hmm. the last time my one of my CFS workers told me. It was 75 foster homes, and I was still a kid at the time, too. Right. I'm wondering, have you ever seen the Harry Potter series of films? Harry Potter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I, I thought, I wonder if Devon has, you know, has some sort of a, a connection with that with that picture that we saw. And, and the way he was treated, you know, yeah. in his early life. You know what? I've actually, something similar, similar like that, yeah, like, like, yo, I remember this uh, one foster home. I was maybe, I, must, I was like maybe like 12, 13. But I remember um, I I was uh, one Christmas, on Christmas, yo, I was I was like, I didn't get no presents, yo. But their mm-hmm. kids did. Mm-hmm. But, but the foster kid didn't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, and I used to get asked to leave, like the house to be like, oh, do you have anywhere to go for a couple hours? We're going to have, we're going to have family over. Wow. And I was just, yeah, so, yeah. You know, so so that speaks to a much bigger sense of, of what was going on in, in those homes you were in at the time. If they were asking you to leave, obviously you weren't being included with the family. You weren't being meant to or, or being invited in to feel like this was your home. No. To be honest, I was a paycheck to pretty much a lot of people because I would, there's these things in CFS where like there's like different stages depending on how like how much trouble the kid is they would say you know and I was a level five that was the highest mm. and people got paid like more money like just to keep me because I was like upbringing I guess they they, right. they said. You know uh, what what Johnny said earlier, and that I've, I I saw and heard from that interview I saw with you guys about him saying, you know, lifting our people with us, it was I th- I thought it was a really interesting statement, and he's proving that by what he's doing with you. But I also liked what you said in that interview that I saw, and that was what you hope to do in the future, and and how you hope to help children, uh, children wards, you know. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. But it's it's really interesting that you see see that as something you, that you went through, and you could probably help these permanent wards uh, children. And, and so, congratulations to you on that. Thank you. The, the way I see it is like I I lived it, you know. Yeah. Like I'm 25 years old. I lived 18 years of my life through that. I'm pretty sure. Well, there's like yo, I'm I'd be good at that job, you know, like because mm. I know what those kids would, how would how they feel, you know, like mm-hmm. being a foster kid going into a stranger's home, you know, that's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to uh, the website for uh, for Strength in the Circle because it's a pretty cool website you have going. You've done a number of videos, uh, Johnny, and um, uh, there's some pretty powerful uh, things on there. But there's also a, a number of other things, what you guys are up to, what you've been doing. Uh, what we're doing is on April 11th, Storming Stony. Yeah. Um, we're going to live stream the event and we're going to have rapper uh, and performer Jesus yeah. uh, 
out of Calgary. So he's going to perform over a live stream during that time. Um, and we're going to have five runners uh, running from North End Winnipeg, 22.5 kilometers to Stony Mountain uh, Federal Institution. And what we're doing is we're going we're gonna to have our SEDGEN awareness team kind of giving packets of inf- historical information uh, about Big Bear, Poundmaker, um, looking at where we come from, reminding ourselves of who we are and where we come from, um, but also looking at the, the, the dynamics that continue to perpetuate in our communities and and the things that need to be changed so in the in the bigger picture we're calling for criminal justice system reform we're calling for systems change Mm. and and what date is that again april what april 11th april 11th all right we'll be pushing it on our social media handle uh through Facebook. That, that's great. And people can uh, find out more by going to the uh, Strength in the Circle website, right? Uh, the, there's the website and there's the Strength in the Circle uh, Facebook page. It's mm. more up right. to date. Um, right. Yeah. We're, we're updating our, our Facebook feed uh, daily, almost. We will be hosting a lot of fundraisers and the Storming Sony, we will be fundraising okay. um we're we're working towards getting our charitable status until then we will find a host organization um we want to upgrade like right now we have a sober living house that we're at top capacity with only four residents and we want to mm. get a big, bigger building so we're putting a call out for donations um we want to move towards private sector uh, donations um that way we remain free of the, the funders criteria. Hmm. Um, but yeah, we can do a lot more if, uh, if we got a bigger place and we're able to, to host our initiatives from there. And they are the voices of Devon Henderson and Johnny Meikle. Johnny Meikle is the founder of Strength in the Circle, and we've been talking to them about their events and also about how this Strength in the Circle is helping people. That is Moment of Truth for today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.